Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Ryan Curlin. Ryan Curlin is the president of Alpha Architect. Alpha Architect is a firm filled with top-notch geniuses and researchers who produce a tremendous quantity of valuable investing research. Additionally, they are at the leading edge of the ETF revolution and produce many unique and highly useful ETFs. Ryan is an expert in ETFs and previously worked for the NYSE ETF group, where he was responsible for launching 650 ETFs. He also had past roles at revenue shares. Ryan is a graduate of Fordham University. So how'd you first get interested in investing? Funny enough, I guess I was digging through my, you know, I think a lot of parents have to keep all your keepsakes for, you know, whatever, when you were in grade school and high school and, you know, you, you never actually look at them, but they sit in your basement for 50 years. And so, but whatever, I was digging through them one time and I was student of the week in fourth grade, right? Because everybody was student of the week at one point. And on it, interestingly to myself, I had written that I want to be a New York City businessman, which is such a bizarre thing for a fourth grader to say. Like, I, I don't know how I got that in my head. You know, why didn't I put like, you know, I love basketball. Why don't I put MBA or astronaut or something? Right. But I put NYC businessman. And then I, that must have been in my subconscious. I went to school in New York City and then yeah, majored in economics and basically wanted to just make money. I <laughs> uh, wanted to do something where I made money. And so I, I was like, all right, all these finance people seem to make and good money out of college. So then I got a job at the New York Stock Exchange. How I got the job at the New York Stock Exchange is an even crazier story in the sense that, so my dad was a, he's a Vietnam veteran, infantry Marine, and it was 2008, right? And I was kind of struggling to get an internship. Collapse hadn't happened yet. And my dad was at the Army-Navy football game and he got invited up to a box and met this guy, General Pace, kind of making a long story short, but General Pace was like, oh, you were a Vietnam vet, you know, thanks for your service. Where, like, where'd you serve? Who'd you serve under? And he was like, oh yeah, my captain was this guy, Marsh Carter. He's like, Marsh Carter, it turns out, he's like, do you know Marsh Carter was uh, chairman of the New York Stock Exchange? And my dad was like, no way. Like, oh my God. Like, oh, I got to get in touch with this guy. So he calls up Marsh Carter and was basically like, hey, do you remember me? <laughs> Last time I saw you, you were you were jumping over the top of me in a rice paddy. Wow. Um, they were in a firefight for which Marsh Carter won the Navy Cross, uh, which is the highest uh, medal you could receive. Yeah. And so he's like, he's like, yeah, I remember you, Jim. Like, I got my roster here. And that's my dad's name, Jim. Yeah. So he invited him up to New York Stock Exchange. And, you know, they had a long conversation at the end of it. My dad was like, hey, do you think you like my son? trying to get an internship to work on wall street like and you know marines are their saying is semper fidelis always faithful so marsh was always faithful and i uh, was like yeah hey no problem i'll get your son an internship so accelerating few you know was able to parlay that into a, a job at the new york stock exchange and then not to be like i hope nobody's listening that was working in the original group, but you know, it was kind of like a, a bit of a dead end job, like the first role, right? I was processing paperwork for floor brokers on New York Stock Exchange, which if anybody knows anything about finance, it's yeah, you know, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange is and you know, was like a dying place, right? There, there's not uh there's not any action down there like yeah. it used to be, like you see in the movies. I just happened to sit next to the exchange traded funds group. And after a you know, you're so working next to them. They were like, Hey, we got, you know, there's a new, we need a new person, like just to talk to clients and stuff because business is booming. And I didn't frankly know what an ETF was at that point, but I was okay. I guess at that, just talking to people. So I was like, all right, yeah, I'll move into this group. And that kind of then sprung me all the way to where I am today. Wow. That was some real serendipity. So you really, you know, kind of through that conversation wound up in the leading edge of, of a revolution that that's changing 
the financial system to this day. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it's hard when you're in on the cutting edge side of things. Like I didn't have the maturity or the wisdom, I guess, to like understand. I would look at things and be like, well, yeah, like, of course, like why, you know, why wouldn't you use ETFs, right? More tax efficient, it's like way lower cost. Like what? You know, like it just wouldn't even make sense. I didn't even know the mutual fund world like at all. And, you know, it just, it took me a lot, a long time to kind of understand the market dynamics at play, I guess is what I would say to even gain confidence in like how revolutionary this stuff was to investment management in the world. Absolutely. So for investors out there who might not be familiar with it, what would you say are the chief advantages of an ETF versus a mutual fund? Transparency is probably, is like, is probably the biggest, you know, it, it wasn't one that I maybe appreciated the most uh, earlier, but as I've grown in my career and time, uh, I've appreciated more, right? So you, you can see what does your ETF own on a daily basis? And whereas for mutual funds, you, you might get to see it on a quarterly basis, right? There's just a lag there, but it just it's more than just, hey, you can kind of see what's going on. It just instills this culture of transparency into the ETF industry to put as much information readily available out there, right? It's like, which just means, hey, what's your cost? How much does it cost to buy this thing, right? Like, what's the actual investment strategy? What the heck are you actually doing, right? Like, educate us and just push, 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 push out education via transparency is generally a big thing within the ETF industry at large. And that was unique. That was new for the asset management industry. The other big one, you know, that probably gets most talk about is probably also the most misunderstood is the tax efficiency. So ETFs can, it, this is a topic we could probably talk about for 30 minutes, but so just summarizing a little bit and overstating slightly just to shorten the point, ETFs rarely generally distribute capital gain distributions, mm -hmm. which makes them way more tax efficient, right? Like, why do you invest in a 401k, right? Well, because your money just gets to keep compounding without having to pay taxes. Uh, capital gain distributions, which are often kicked out by, say, mutual funds when they, you know, if a mutual fund manager sells a stock position they made money on, well, now they have to send that capital gain out to you, which you then have to pay taxes on. And you could be, you know, uh, paying 15, 20% on that, which is just that 15, 20% is just money that goes to Uncle Sam and just disappears, right? As opposed to if that, if you didn't have to pay that tax because the money just kept compounding, you would have more money, right? And that's, that's the idea for why you invest in a IRA instead of a taxable money or a 401k. So ETFs kind of create that. And then I'd say that the third thing, right? So we said transparency, tax efficiency. Third thing is generally cost. Now, no doubt Vanguard is the revolution of cost. They are what forced the entire industry to you know, get super cost competitive. But ETFs greatly accelerated that too, because what it really took to greatly accelerate things was having a new structure that was way better than the old structure, right? So having ETFs way better than mutual fund in order to dislodge the behemoths in the place, right? Like, I think Elon Musk had a tweet or somebody had a talk about it. Like, to upend an industry, you can't just build a 2x better thing and expect to dislodge the, you know, the entrenched competitors. Like, they have so much money, so much, you know, human, so much brain power, mm -hmm. right? Like, you need a 10x thing if you're going to dislodge the status quo. And that's basically what ETFs did. Right. And so just greatly. And then how does that all translate to investors at the end? Like, how does this, this just greatly invest benefits American economy because now there's less money going to Wall Street, way less money, right? And more money just going into the hands of everyday Americans where they can, you know, spend it better how they see fit. The old stat is that Eric Balkunas talks about a lot is fidelity makes more money than the entire ETF industry combined. So, wow. Um, like the ETF industry on a relative basis does not make anywhere near the amount of money that old finance used to make, right? Which is great. That's efficient. That's making the American economy more efficient. And we can take those savings and go spend them on, you know, whatever, curing cancer, building houses, whatever. Absolutely. So that's a good point about fidelity. So why do you think they're 
are still so many assets in mutual funds. So mutual funds still have more assets than ETFs. Why do you think that's still the case? Why haven't ETFs become the standard and just completely displaced the mutual fund industry? Yeah, I got some stories I could probably tell that I don't know if they're appropriate for a public podcast. <laughs> um, tell them, I'm, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> let's give let's give some like um, looser details. In that, it's death by a thousand cuts. Um, there are, you know, any any in any industry, the competitors have a million advantages, right? They again, they have more money, they have more people, they have more institutional knowledge, they have more contacts, they have blah, 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 more brand awareness, et cetera, et cetera. The biggest one is just simply if, if you've been at a mega behemoth asset manager your entire life for 30 years, right? 40 years, your working career, and you finally rise to the top to be CEO, you know, COO, top dog, you now are getting like, you know, I don't know, five, I, I don't actually know, right? But let's just say really big numbers, 5 million, 10 million. Like if the company, you know, hits earnings or, or grows profits or whatever, right? Yeah. You're like, well, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, I don't need to blow up our business, even though it's good for the you know, it's good for the hundred year time frame for us to like switch from mutual funds to ETFs. Mm-hmm. I just need to ride this thing out on my seat for three years, five years, collect my money, you know, try to take like a little risk, maybe do a little to get into ETFs. Like we'll launch a few ETFs, right? But like never fully committing. And if you don't fully commit, right? The, yeah, I mean, the asset management industry is way too cutthroat. So you're, you're going to get you're going to get beat because yeah, yeah. The, the other, your competitors are fully committed. So, so I, I would say that's the biggest reason, just kind of like status quo people at the top are not incentivized to um, burn it all down. Like it would, it would take like a, uh, take a founder mindset, I guess, or an actual founder who wants just because they love the business, wants to see it, you know, thrive for a hundred years and is taking like the hundred year viewpoint versus, you know, the person who's rose through the ranks finally is making money and wants to, you know, just make their three to five year money. And then they're probably getting canned. Yeah. That's a tough position to be in. If you're in one of those seats, I could, I could understand that. So in terms of the long-term trajectory of ETFs, where do you think we are? Where do you think we're headed next? We're there. Yeah. I say ETF industry is now a mature industry. I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but like they ETF industry is now a major percentage. I don't know whether it's 30% of AUM or somewhere around there. Like all, when I say AUM of all fund assets, you know, in the US mutual funds, uh, hedge funds, uh, exchange traded funds, right? It's now a major player. It will be the, you know, like in the long run, right? So I, I, I'm just guessing, don't hold me to it, but I think we're somewhere 30%, something like that. I do think ETFs will be 80%, 90%, 95% of assets uh, of uh, publicly traded investment management assets or exactly what we want to class- classify by something like that. So there's room to grow. I mean, and they will keep growing and drastically growing market share and, and brand share. Like the biggest growth has come on terms of just a you know compound growth perspective. So I mean, 80, 90, 95%. And like the number, uh, I probably tweeted this like a year ago, maybe two years ago. I don't know. I just said, hey, whatever your guess is for the number of ETFs listed in the US, I say, guess higher. Right? And people are kind of starting to see it now. Like, I think, you know, like, wow. Like, you know, it was like, we thought, you know, when there was a thousand ETFs listed, everybody was like, man, every ETF idea to ever think of has already been done, right? And then at 2,000 listed ETFs, it was like every ETF that could be thought of has been thought of, right? And there's nothing but like silly ideas left. And, you know, and it just keeps going up. And again, off the top of my head, I don't know where we're at. I think we're three, 4,000, something like that, US listed ETFs. But like, guess higher, whatever you're you know, wherever you think we're going to be in 10 years. And that there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons costs coming down, that's probably the biggest, the cost to launch an ETF is decreasing. And just in any simple economic world, right? If, you know, I say, take an extreme example. Imagine if it only cost you $10,000 per year to operate and run an ETF that you could charge a management fee on. Like, well, you would probably launch an ETF. I don't know. Yeah, I don't probably. know how much you make. Like, I don't know. <laughs> you know I know you got... 
50,000 Twitter followers. Like, so every step lower that the cost of an ETF becomes, well, it becomes much more attractive to launch an ETF because now you don't need 50 million in AUM to be, you know, positive. Maybe you need 5 million in AUM, right? And, and now you have upside where you could maybe make some money on it yourself. Like, so with costs coming down, that's pushing up supply greatly. What are the uh, typical costs of launching an ETF? Like kind of uh, AUM or market cap does an ETF need to become profitable? We have our own white label ETF business here at Alpha Architect. Uh, well, I guess technically it's a separate business. It's called ETF Architect. But we have a whole blog. A uh, big, big thing for Alpha Architect is we just are, we try to be the most transparent firm in the ETF space, which is really transparent. So we have a whole blog post that lays out all the costs and everything that go into launching an ETF currently, uh, and we're always updating it. But a ballpark, it's probably about like 70 to 90 grand in upfront costs, right? Just like paying, not paying us, paying, you know, lawyers and things like that just to get the thing set up. And then there's about, I think it's 180 to 200K or 210K or so in fixed costs. Now that can all change too, based on, you know, if you're like, hey, we want to trade this thing daily. Well, that's going to cost you a lot of money because that there's like operational. Now somebody needs to trade this thing daily for you, right? So that's like an operational cost, but ballpark, let's say 180, 200, 210. And then there's a basis point charge, which is any like anywhere from four basis points up to, I don't know, 15, 20, 25. Again, it all depends what the individual who wants to launch the ETF is doing. But that's pretty good. Like those numbers may sound high, but it's it's like, again, if you wanted to launch your own ETF company, what would that cost you? Like, so you got to hire, you know, you got to get your own Bloomberg's for trading. You got to do your own compliance. You got to still market and sell the thing, deal with the SEC and on and on and on. I don't know. <laughs> what that would cost like my best guess like the cheapest i could imagine in today's world you could do it for would be like you would need like a million dollars like ready to rock yeah you might need like you might need like two million like ready to burn through you know by coming on a platform you you arguably lower your cost to do so by i don't know 5x 10x or something because you can share costs basically is, is what's occurring Interesting. And how do those costs compare to what they were like five years ago, 10 years ago? Less. Like, yeah. so what's crazy, and that's where I say, you know, they're coming down. When I started in the ETF industry around like 2011, 2010, you could, so to launch an ETF, you have to have this thing called exemptive relief from the SEC, which is what's that? That's just ex basically exempting you from what makes a mutual fund a mutual fund. You just get relief from those rules, and you have, but you have to get it. And that's that's what makes you able to launch an ETF company. And that's just one, you know, essentially small piece of paper, right? That's not your trading. That's not your your salary or your compliance costs, your eh, blah, blah, blah. That's just like, okay, now we can kind of think about doing this. And those were going like firms were selling those because it would take you like two years to get exemptive relief from the SEC approved, right? Like, so people were selling those for, I never saw the actual numbers. Like the rumors were like 1 million, 2 million that you could simply sell that piece of paper for because just because like, otherwise you got to wait two years. So, you know, and then everything else that goes along with it, you know, it was crazy before my time. I mean, it was ETFs were getting seeded with like a hundred million dollars, two hundred million dollars by the market makers because ever you know the market makers, I guess, thought every ETF was going to be like SPY and then wanted the trading gotcha. um, volume from it. So, so yeah, it was crazy times, I guess, for a while there, you know. And then it all came down. Yeah, got expensive to launch an ETF. Yeah, let's let's say just one million. I mean, so I don't know what it actually would have cost you to to launch a firm at that time, but I, I would if it cost you a million, two million just to buy exempt relief. I mean, maybe it was five, ten million to to launch a firm, something like that. Gotcha. Yeah, but the long would have been a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of firms failed in the early days too. I mean, it was still really hard. Like, I mean, yeah, it's the hard thing about launching early in a market is that the there's not. You know, it seems like, oh, wow, if I just launched an ETF company 20 years ago, Jesus. But it's also the brand awareness wasn't there. Like you'd go into these offices and, you know, you'd talk to a financial advisor and be like, hello, we have ETFs. And it's like, what's that? 
Like, so, you know, mm. you can't even begin talking about what your ETF does, right? It's like, oh, well, that, those are scary. Can't they go to zero? Like, you know, all these like misunderstandings. Uh-huh. So that's like in the early days, most of that is gone. That's They're still running that sometimes. But yeah, so like, it's like, it's never easy, I guess is my point. There's never like a perfect time where, hey, if you just launched a company now, you're guaranteed success. Because now you don't have that issue, but now you got other issues where you got 100x competitors. Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's good for investors. I mean, the long-term trajectory of costs is down. That's right. There are so many ETFs that are available. Like as an investor, I just enjoy having to be able to cheaply and efficiently access so many different strategies and asset classes. It's definitely a whole different world than what existed pre-ETF. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, investors win because again, quoting Eric Balkunis again, you know, he calls the ETF industry the terror dome. <laughs> and he's talking about our side of the business. Like it's a terror dome for businesses because it's just so unbelievably competitive. Cool. So you guys do a lot of work on factor investing, on factor strategies. So I'm obviously a big fan of the value factor. So uh, how do you look at the current state of the value factor? Yeah, uh, interesting. It was, you know, a long lost time in the wilderness there for a while, I guess, in 2017 or so on uh, to about 2022, 2021, something like that, right? And then value seemed to have a pretty good resurgence for about a year or so there. And then, you know, hey, this year, it's like, what should you have bought? Well, you should have bought, again, probably the most, you know, these really expensive mega cap stocks, right? You should have, essentially, you should have bought QQQ at the start of the year. Last I checked, I don't know what it is now, but last I checked, it's like QQQ was up 36% or 40% or something year to date. Yeah, that's right. Where S&P 500 was like 16 and general value strategies were probably somewhere around 8%, you know? So like in a, in a absolute sense, 8%, not bad, but you know, you're always looking at relative in our world. So it's like, oh man, SP 500, 15%, 16%, QQQ, 36 to 40. It's like, ah, FOMO is back. So that's interesting. I mean, I would say, I mean, I just, I'm going to like read this quote from, I put it on my Twitter profile. It was so Larry Swedro, who many people may know. Yeah, he's great. He writes a lot of content for, for your blogs there. That's right. He wrote a summary on our blog a paper by David Blitz called The Cross-Section of Factor Returns, which is, you know, the super deep geek stuff. But, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in it, but the line that jumped out to me the most in Larry's summary was the results suggest that mispricing builds up gradually during prolonged bull markets, resulting in weak factor returns and tends to get corrected relatively quickly in bear markets, resulting in large factor payoffs. So that part, the results suggest mispricing builds up gradually during prolonged bull markets, resulting in weak factor returns. Like that's what we like. So factor strategies just generally, whether you're talking value, momentum's probably done the best, but you know, it hasn't like crushed or anything. The market probably been right about with the market. And then, you know, other factors, other major factors like size, quality, I believe have, have lagged the market as well as value. So just generally speaking, factors have struggled. And it says the results suggest that mispricing builds up gradually during prolonged bull markets. So that's interesting. I mean, what have we been in? Like this research is showing, what have we been in for uh, since 2009? Like we've been in this prolonged bull market and, you know, didn't, you know, I don't really consider the pandemic because it was it was like so fast and furious, right? It was just like 30, yeah. 40% down and just 30, 40% back up like a month later. Pretty unusual. Nobody totally felt that, I guess. So I, I don't know. And then it's like, hey, it tends to get corrected relatively quickly in bear markets resulting in large factor payoffs. So that's what our data is seeing, right? Like that ties up with our data in that the mispricing of particularly the value strategy type of value strategy we run, which is using EBIT to TEV, earnings before interest and taxes over total enterprise value uh, screen to invest in our uh, the companies that we invest in, like the 10% cheapest stocks by EBIT to TEV as we measure it are cheaper than they've ever been, like by a lot going back to about 1992. So we're way cheaper than 
1999 tech bubble and way cheaper than the bottom of the market in 2008-2009. So like those two things would sync up together, right? And that, that factor struggle in, in these big bull markets and tend to get corrected relatively quickly. Yeah, so a little bit of a long answer, but getting to it, you're like, well, where do you see value currently? And that's what we see value is very, very cheap. Even if you look at other screens as such as book to price, book to price screens have come down quite a bit from their all-time highs relative to the market, like where they were historically, but they're still, you know, very cheap as well. Uh, just not as cheap from our view uh, as EBITDA TV, which you, I think you kind of yeah see out there in the market too. So it, it's interesting. I mean, I say take that all with a grain of salt because, you know, we do have value strategies that do this, right? So I am the barber. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a nice tool that you have over at the website where you show the historical trending of different valuation metrics. I do think it's pretty interesting that the enterprise multiples are super cheap and price to book is cheap, but not. it doesn't quite show the same blowout. Like I wonder what's at work there. I kind of think enterprise-based multiples might be showing concerns from the market that Maybe these are more cyclical companies and the market's super worried about them getting crushed in a recession. What do you think about that logic? Yeah, I, I like that logic. I mean, I've been trying to think myself, yeah, what is causing that? I don't have a great, I, yeah, I kind of like your thesis the best. <laughs> Let's go with it. Uh, <laughs> it kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, because when you look at like home builders, for instance, they're super cheap right now. Yeah. And, you know, who, if you think we're going to have a recession and you see uh, mortgage rates increasing, well, who would buy a home builder? And I think it's probably why they're super cheap. Yeah. And I mean, home builders were just fascinating because, and this is where like something I've spoken about before is I could give you all of the data in the future, everything, every macroeconomic piece of data, and you would still probably be wrong in your investments, right? So even like knowing the future doesn't necessarily help you. Home builders, right? They had a huge run up. They did great. Interest rates going down, 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 right? So people buying, buying homes, demand, right? Anybody who tried to buy a house over the last, you know, uh, like from 2016 or so to 2000. 22, right? Like mm -hmm. couldn't buy a house. And then what was the obvious prediction? Okay. Interest rates are screaming higher, right? What's going to happen from a macro perspective? Home builders are going to stop building houses because nobody's going to buy a house because interest rates have gone from two and a half percent on a 30 year to now they're at seven and a half percent. It's now like two X, three X more expensive per month to buy the same house. That's going to crash the housing prices and home builders aren't going to be able to make money and nobody's buying houses, right? And that was totally 100% wrong. I mean, interest rates blew up, yeah. right? but home builders are now still building homes at all-time highs because demand is still off the charts. I mean, I just call it like the life goes on. And I stole that from somebody on Twitter, me, me a culpa. Uh, somebody had that, right? The life goes on economy in that, yeah, it is like 3X, 2X uh, in terms of monthly costs to buy a house now. But like, well, you have a growing family, you need a bigger house. Like, you know, uh, you're moving to a new area. Well, you need a house. You change jobs, you need a house, right? Like graduated college, right? You need somewhere to live. Like, so there's just all these like life goes on things. And so home builders are just flying and they were super cheap. I mean, so yeah, they're a particularly interesting value stock. They're also momentum stock, which is the other type of investing we generally do. And those are our favorite types of stocks, stocks that are value and momentum, because it means they probably went up a lot. Interesting. Yeah. So then let's talk a little bit about momentum. So how does momentum work and how do you guys apply momentum strategies? Momentum is pretty simple, which I think might scare at least some people away, like fundamental value investors, right? It's almost fundamental value investing, which is what Warren Buffett does, right? Which is potentially what a lot of people listening to you do, right? It yeah, feels it's, like it's, it's, sacri it's sacrilege to value investors. <laughs> yeah, it is because fundamental value investing, which like, let's define that as, hey, you, you're digging through what's the PE ratio of this firm? What's their growth rate? Let me 
you know, read their quarterly earnings reports, see what the CEO is saying on, you know, and try to decipher, you know, how the growth's going to go and look at market trends and, you know, like you, you're doing all this work and it's like, man, like most things in life, I'm doing way more work than anybody else. I therefore should get rewarded with getting higher expected returns. And for like Warren, that's true. For a lot of people, it's not true, right? And that's kind of like a hard thing because momentum investing at the end of the day, it's kind of the antithesis of that. You're generally, you're just buying whatever stocks have gone up the most and then selling them in three months or six months, whenever they, you know, or nine months, whatever, whenever they stop going up or, you know, and, and you can buy them and they, they go down and then, you know, that missed that one. And then you go buy, uh, buy the new one, right? That's the new stocks going up or the new sectors generally. So it's kind of like simple. The cool thing for value investors is because of that, historically speaking, it is the antithesis of value investing as well. Generally, when value strategies are lagging, momentum stocks are doing really well. And that that's why we built our firm that way. Hopefully you get, you know, you're getting this general yin and yang of value stocks doing well, maybe momentum stocks lagging, momentum stocks doing well, value stocks lagging. You couch the overall premium. Uh, so premium is like return above and beyond the market from them, you know, while smoothing out your overall returns in the long run. Now we have some fancier bells and whistles on our momentum strategies. The biggest one being the frog in the pan screen, which I could go into if you'd like, but I yeah, let's forward. talk about it. That sounds, that sounds interesting. Yeah. So frog in the pan was this, you know, not from us. It was you know, third party research, but basically figured out that if you had, again, simplifying the research a little bit, but if, if you had two stocks and one was a biotech stock and one was a, you know, sneaker company and they both went up a thousand percent over the last, you know, two to 12 months, you would put the, the biotech company, you know, announced they had a drug that cured cancer you know, three months ago. So they just shot up a thousand percent in a day, right? Which is kind of what you see biotech stocks generally do when they, you know, announce they've gotten approval for a drug or whatever. Then the sneaker company just went up a little bit each day to eventually give you a thousand percent return, right? So this this just steady grind up. In our world, well, we want to own stocks that continue to outperform in the future. We don't want to own stocks that outperformed in the past, right? So the type of momentum that seems to persist into the future is that sneaker company stock that just went up and people keep underreacting to and not that biotech company. And there's there's like live examples, like a stock we didn't buy recently that some of our competitors had bought was BIIB. They were a biotech company. They got approval for an Alzheimer's drug, I believe. You know, so the stock just shot up, right? And it, it was had a lot of momentum over the last year. It had gone up a lot but our frog in the pan screen would keep that out. NVIDIA was another one we didn't buy. I believe, I'm not 100% sure, I believe our frog in the pan screen kept that out. It could have been our like another screen, but just generally speaking, yeah. Uh, I mean, probably the best one, we never owned GameStop. GameStop was up like 8,000%. It was the number one momentum stock. We never owned it because cause it, it just, uh, yeah, that was like way too volatile of a stock. That's not the type of momentum that persists into the future. Gotcha. That's an interesting like nuance to your to your strategy there. So what is the key metric you look for in terms of momentum? Is it like relative strength? Is it some difference from like a moving average? How do you guys think about that? Yep. It's two to twelve momentum. So what is that? That's you know, how much has the stock gone up in the last twelve months without looking at the most recent month? So that this is just a robust academic finding. Like the reason you use two to 12 months and not one through 12 months is uh, in the research, there's actually like a dead cat bounce where the stocks that have gone down the most over the last month tend to dead cat bounce. They'll kind of bounce up and do pretty well for one month and then continue back on down to their deaths. <laughs> but so you just don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to like get confused with those stocks. So so you, you just screen on what's done well the past two to 12 months and remove that most recent month. So that's that's the first big screen. We have liquidity screens and things like that too. Yeah. So then you just get down to, hey, momentum side, what are the 100 stocks that have gone up the most over the last two to 12 months? Great. And then from there, we just take the 50 that have the best frog in the pan momentum. You know, So essentially like what have the kind of smoothest, least volatile returns from those 100 high flyers. And then from there, we equal weight those 50 stocks. So it's it's just in the ETF world, it's just a yeah, concentrated 50 stocks of momentum. 
Gotcha. Cool. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of the value names also have momentum. So what do you think about that? Do you think that that's a valid strategy to combine a value strategy with a momentum strategy? Or do you think those should be in totally separate buckets? Do you have your value bucket and you have your momentum bucket and you don't really combine the two strategies? Yeah, we the way we think of it as they're just kind of like they kind of typically should be bought together. You should buy momentum, you should buy value together. We separate them just because it's we think it it helps to just know what's going on, right? Like because you can be like, oh, oh okay, value's doing well and momentum's lagging, or momentum's doing well and value's lagging, right? So just just pair them together as opposed to. Right. Like some farms have their multi factor, right, where they smash everything together, which is fine. This is just different views. But with the multi factor, like the hard questions really only come when things are performing poorly. Right. And then with, if you're if you're smashing everything together, it's just harder to decipher why and explain why, you know, you're lagging because mm. any strategy is inevitably going to lag for an extended period of time in order to outperform. So, yeah. So we recommend typically, yeah, you know, hey, buy our value, buy our momentum, put them together. Yeah, hopefully they kind of yin and yang and, and you generally catch the overall premium from them both over the long term. Gotcha. So it's kind of like a barbell strategy where you know you hope your momentum stuff is doing well in one time period and when value is lagging and vice versa. That's right. Gotcha. Cool. We've talked about differences in the value spread so that's super interesting. So you mentioned in that conversation, the enterprise multiples. So I thought it might be good to talk a little bit about the enterprise multiples and why do you guys prefer them? So why is that the case? Why do you think enterprise multiples, EV the EBIT is the best valuation metric? I'd say like the the one big thing is in, in the modern economy, this is what gets a little bit hard to determine, right? So as a quant, what are you doing? You are taking things that occurred in the past and they did well, and then you're investing in that. Now, you also then have to think, well, this I'm investing in this thing in the past, but I don't have a crystal ball. And so I also need to come up with reasoning for just because this did well in the past that it'll continue to do well in the future. And like if we built a stock strategy that began, uh, we said, all right, over the last 50 years or uh, let's do 30 years. Over the last 30 years, we do a back test, which is you know, a reasonable back test. You're like, all right, we're going to uh, uh, market cap weight stocks that begin with the letter A. Well, like that would crush from a <laughs> back-tested return standpoint. Your market cap stocks that begin with the letter A, you, you know, you'd probably have like a 25% weighting to Apple, 25% to Amazon over the last 30 years. And like you'd be, you'd be like Warren, <laughs> Warren Buffett who, right? Great strategy. Um, yeah, great strategy. But you'd have but to no, uh, couch yeah. it in something that would <laughs> that would make it sound more reasonable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, yeah, right. I mean, we we'd tow our back desk around and we'd say, oh yeah, look at us. But we'd call it the you know the, yeah the really smart guys strategy. We can't. This is where transparency matters too, right? Because we're like, well, we can't show you why this works so well, but it works well. But if you have transparency, you could actually show people and they'd be like, mm, mm-hmm. no, you're just investing in stocks that begin with the letter A. I don't think that's going to work. So like, there's no reason that'll work in the future, right? Even though it continues to work. Like I've been using yeah. that example for probably three, four years now. Like, And that strategy would have continued to work. <laughs> Apple's now $3 trillion. Like, you know, so you'd be like, you're an idiot, right? And this, this works, right? You know, I'd have a whole industry of, you know, guys selling that strategy and be calling me dumb uh, and they'd be right they'd continue to be right so but it is what it is like i we just have to figure out and and determine what is going to do well in the future so getting back around to your ebit tv like the qualitative idea on book to price that's generally harmful is the example we sometimes use as well meta formerly known as the artist uh facebook uh bought instagram and they bought instagram for a billion dollars and yeah. on their book value, then Meta has Instagram valued at a billion dollars. Instagram is probably the most valuable thing now that Meta owns, right? So what's Meta worth? Are they, I mean, are they a trillion dollars? Some 600 billion, 800, like somewhere up there, right? Mm-hmm. So like, 
I don't know. What's Instagram worth then? Like 500 billion, 600 billion. Like it's not worth a billion, right? It's worth way more than that. Yeah. But if you're, if you're screening, you know, their book value, Facebook's Meta's book value by the, their price, like they're always going to look expensive. You know, it's, it's really hard to see a world where Meta then would look cheap on a book to price, but they could be cheap. And EBIT to TV, on the other hand, you're just looking at their earnings generally, right? Operating earnings over their total enterprise value, which is what total enterprise value is your market cap plus your debt. And that's like a key point to grasp because it's this is how private equity people think. If you want to take over a business and have 100% control of the business, what do you have to do? You have to buy out their, the company's market cap, their stock. You also have to buy out all the debt holders. Right. If you want to have 100% control. Otherwise, you have to, you know, those, those debt holders are technically highest on, on the totem pole. Yeah. So you don't fully control the business. So if, if you like outright want to fully airlift the business out, clean up its balance sheet, whatever, like you have to buy a market the equity holders and all the people they have debt to. And then you subtract out the cash because that's what, again, you would do if you were buying a business. You would go, okay, well, you know, uh, this ice cream stand has, you know, it's worth the building it's in and all of its revenues or whatever. Let's say it's worth a million dollars, right? But they owe $500,000 mortgage. Okay, well, that's $1 million plus. 500,000, 1.5 million for us to totally buy it all. But oh, the owner has a uh, stack of cash for, you know, $10 million locked up in a safe, which he's also going to include in the business deal. Oh, okay. Well, we can subtract that out. Like, and that, you know, now the business is worth like a, uh, what did I say before? A million plus 500, 1.5. But now we're subtracting the cash out. Like, damn, this thing's, you know, worth negative eight and a half million. Like, it's the cigar butt company. We're, what a steal. Like, let's buy this thing. This is crazy. They have so much cash on their books. So that's like how private equity looks. That's obviously a very extreme example. But so that's why we like EBIT to total enterprise value, because you can value the modern day, we think on a go forward basis, we think you can value the modern day economy better because we're just looking at, hey, how much does, how much does Meta earn per year based on their capital structure? Like that took, like, what did they have to do to get to those earnings? And so there is a chance, like we haven't before, but again, I did have an ongoing tweet thread for a while. We were getting close to buying Meta, uh, which would have been just really fun, like interesting name to own. And then they shot up before they got quite cheap enough. Yeah, it got uh, very yeah. cheap. It was down to, I bought it. It, was, it, it. At the end of last year, it got down to eight times, which is pretty incredible for a company of that quality. Exactly. Yeah. So we at least could buy, whereas like a book to price... Yeah, it's tough to ever see a world where they were doing that stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that the Instagram example is a, is a great way to demonstrate that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Okay, so you also run the strategies, your quality and your momentum strategies with international style. You take those strategies and then you apply them to XUF. So how do you think about international investing in terms of value and momentum strategies? Uh, nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> might be a good time to get more involved if that's the case yeah i mean international like on our international value strategies they've generally underperformed since inception and uh so i mean just again being the barber here but the way we kind of think about it is if you look at like what have international markets done over the last five ten years like they just generally haven't done anything like it's like oh well efa is up i don't know you know over again what time frame we're we looking at you know that's five years. I think over the last five years, EFA is like plus 20% or something. Or over the last 10 years, it's like same thing, like maybe plus 30, like, which is like, ah, oh, not bad, you know? And if you look at, you know, factor strategies, maybe they're at 0% or something. You're like, man, that's not great. And 30% sounds pretty good or 20%, right? And you're like, oh, it's 20% difference. But if you then pull up like IVV, you know, the SP 500 and it's up, you know, I don't know, again, what time frame we're looking at, but right, it's up 100%, 200%. It's like, that's a return. Like, that's a market that's moving, like going places. International markets have just been pretty, just generally stagnant for, you know, a decade. And so we're just waiting for kind of something to, to move there from a, uh, yeah, just from an overall market perspective. And that's going to be, you know, what could potentially get 
factors going, international value or international momentums going in the international space. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, stuff's cheap. There's like there's great narratives you could put around it internationally, right? Like, oh, well, it's not as looked at as a market, therefore it should be easier to find value. But we'll see. I mean, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of those markets, they do appear cheaper. And if you scan through them, you can find some pretty high quality names. So yeah, I, I think it is a pretty interesting opportunity. Yeah, I think, you know, Vanguard publishes their forward expected returns on all asset classes. And I mean, and I'm a Vanguard fan, so this isn't a bashing. It's just like how hard it is to predict the future talking. Mm-hmm. You know, I think international markets generally have been cheaper than US markets for a decade. So like Vanguard, I believe, has had, you know, hey, invest in international markets. You, We expect a higher return going, you know, over the next 10 years. And it's like, you know, it's the old like early is the same as being wrong. Like they could very well be right, but, you know, haven't been right yet. Right. On that, you know, the forward expected returns for international US stocks, right? US stocks have just crushed that. So, yeah, we'll see. TBD. I mean, if you go back and look at like a very long history, like we have some data on our website. If you look at a very long history, like we have back to 1927, the SP 500 versus essentially uh, EFA, right? The international developed stocks. And this is how it goes. Right. So this isn't actually surprising if you look at the data, like US stocks will just outperform international stocks for 10 years, like, you know, Mm. straight comp, like on a, like the one chart we have is looking at it on a five year compound annual return basis. And anytime, you know, US stocks is above like the, the line across the middle, it's like, okay, above means, you know, US stocks beat international developed. And when, you know, international developed below, obviously that means it lagged for five years, U.S. stocks. And if you just look back in time, back to 1927, they just yo-yo, where it's just these really long sustained runs of yeah. international stocks beating in the teeth of U.S. stocks, U.S. stocks beating in the teeth of, you know, it's, I guess you would almost like people expect it. It just kind of makes sense. It's like you expect it to be like, Oh, well, you know, yeah, U.S. stocks do well for two years, then international stocks do well for a year, then, you know, then U.S. stocks do well for a year. And then, you know, like this, like tighter back and forth. But yeah, yeah, just historically speaking, that this is the way it is. And so at some point, I do have confidence, I guess is all I would say. It could be 10 years away. It could be five years away. I don't know. At some point, it will switch. And there will be all these narratives around, you know, why international stocks, uh, you know, America's dying, um, <laughs> you know, like, you know, there's a great narrative around why. But yeah, it's it's really just, yeah, it's just the way it goes. Who knows? Yeah, I observed that in, in my own backtesting where I saw that in the 70s and 80s, international stocks just destroyed U.S. stocks. And if you take the whole period from like 1970 to today, they're pretty close in terms of their total returns over that whole period. But with the U.S., it's kind of lopsided to the recent era. And then with the international stocks, it's more lopsided to the 70s and 80s. It's interesting how, how it works that way. And you're right. They do develop are constantly developing narratives about what's happening right now. People are just making up a story about what, what happened. Like in the 80s, it was, oh, well, Japan is taking over the world and the U.S. is falling behind. And today it's, well, we have Silicon Valley and U.S. companies are better and yeah, I, I agree with you. It kind of all seems like noise. Forget exactly what the research was. I think I think Cliff Asnes had shared something on Twitter, and then I cited it or, or something. But I and and Cliff had a great response. Is the reason I'm bringing it up. Like said it way better than I said it, which is you know the like always the case. <laughs> but it was something like I was just saying. If you stare at this quantitative data through history long enough and like just are constantly around it like we are here at Alpha Architect like it's crazy how little like time is like how like what actually is significant like is is five years significant like five years is a really long time to us humans like most people are only investing for you know, I don't know, like, like really, what when do you actually start investing for most people? Like thirty-five. By that, I mean like you have enough enough capital, 
Yeah. You know, and it's, it's like now you have risk, right? Cause right. When I was 22, I had five grand, like, or two grand, like whatever. And it's like, Oh, okay. I lost all my money. Like, or, Oh, I made a 20% return. Like, you know, you thought right. it mattered, but it, it doesn't like, it's like, you're just spending your early years of capital building, getting to the point where you have enough capital for it to actually do something. So, you know, it's like, I don't know, you're investing like life is really, you know, 40 to 70, 80, something like that. Like it's like this maybe 40 year window and how mm-hmm. insignificant 10 years is on like a statistical basis. Like, and it's crazy, right? right. I mean, you can easily have something get smashed for 10 or 20 years and it's still like the best strategy uh, or, you know, a great strategy. Maybe I should probably never use the word the best uh, for anything, but it's still just a great strategy. And could have something that crushes for 10 years and it is a horrific strategy like terrible you're going to lose all your money so how do you operate it in that world is like like i don't know i mean that's why i mean our best way to do it my best way to gain confidence in it is like oh i can just kind of look at history and tilt the odds of probability in my favor uh, like educate yourself understand the research uh, generally or you can hire somebody who you trust to do so right that's like your other option and then you just kind of gotta yeah like let the chips fail fall where they will based on it because five years ten years is, is just nothing <laughs> and that, that that stinks but it's just the truth yeah i totally agree and people will develop whole narratives about what's happening in 10 years and develop strategies that, like you said, don't make a lot of sense longer term. So thank you for your time today. Um, I thought this was a great overview of of your investing philosophy and your strategies. Uh, before we wrap up, do you have any uh, parting thoughts for the audience? No, check us out at alphaarchitect.com. If you're a financial advisor, check us out there as well. We have an advisor portal where we explain more how we work with financial advisors. Yeah, and follow me on Twitter at uh, at Ryan P. Curlin. Awesome. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.